0: This is the Code of the West podcast. This I am I am Chris Hunt. I am the I'm the creator of the Code of the West uh brand, I guess you would say. And uh yeah, this is my this is my thing that I do. I'm still figuring it out if you are tuning in, just a just a heads up. <laughs> I uh this has turned into something more like a lecture series, unfortunately, I think, but people seem to be uh Still picking up what I'm laying down, so so for right now I'm I'm kind of just uh, talking out on my butt. Um, God, I feel I'm I'm I just got back from Texas and uh, it was a super awesome trip, but holy holy shit, are my allergies going nuts? Uh, <laughs> I was always a bubble kid as uh, when I was growing up, and had a lot of different allergies to animals and hay. and I mean, cold air would bother me. And I've grown out of most of it over the years, but springtime is killer for me. And there was a whole lot of shit blooming in Texas. Uh, the I was told the oaks and Bernie get people, and I, I was in Bernie for a night. And uh, while I was down there, and then uh, I was out uh, walking in fields yesterday with my friend Kyle and. There's all sorts of sage and shit floating around. Like, I mean, it was all super fun. Really enjoyed being out and around. Got to shoot some guns on Friday and and on Monday with Kyle as well, which was a lot of fun. Haven't been able to do that for a while. But uh, I got back, and it had snowed in Utah right before I left, and then I got back to it being 75 last night. So everything's blooming. Everything's out floating in the air, and if I sound... All plugged up and weird. It's because I am all plugged up and still just as weird as I normally am. So bear with me. I think I'm gonna gonna try to wor- stumble my way through one of these things. I I don't know how this one's gonna go because there's things that I wanna I wanna talk about, but I don't wanna go off half cocked. I was thinking a lot while I was down there about the the first two, you know, rules of the code of the West, live with courage and keep your word, but mostly thinking about live with courage. And I was wondering or thinking a lot over the past week what that means and what what that looks like. Because I think a lot of us hear courage and we think of people like Audie Murphy in World War II. You know, Medal of Honor, winners, heroic figures in fiction like Luke Skywalker or Gilgamesh and beowulf there's a, I think there's a tendency to associate courage with big acts and uh you know s- stories but i'm i'm th- I'm starting to think that well, I think I've always really had an, an intuition that courage was more an all the time thing that if you practice it throughout your life then when opportunities emerge where the outcome are these large heroic events, you're ready. Um, so let's just, let, I'm just going to talk about that for a little bit. I, I guess just I guess pontificate. I think it's, I think it's a really odd thing that we, as a culture, at least in the West or America in general, let's say, we seem to really like heroes, we really like these figures that are the, the, the lone individual that stands against tyranny or evil in some way, but very rarely are we those people in our own lives. So what do I, what do I mean by that? Well, to put it simply, it seems like a lot of us are really content to be in groups, You know, whether that physically, you know, and and whether it's at work or clubs, however you organize political parties. And and there's something safe and secure, I think, to a lot of people about that, to be able to feel accepted. And I guess it's probably a way of sort of indicating to to oneself, too, that that acceptance kind of shows that, oh, there's people that agree with me. so i I must not be crazy basically, and i don't want but, but just a quick aside I don't want that to be code of the west i i i think it's i think it's super cool that people that this is resonating with people it's getting people to think, and I'm getting interesting messages from people still pretty pretty regularly about how it's inspiring them to consider doing th- stuff on their own and I'm going to go down the rabbit hole for a second here, but there's a philosopher named Ayn Rand, who was really influential for me and a lot of people in the world, and she wrote a number of books. The two most famous ones are Fountainhead and Atlas Shrugged. Uh, Atlas Shrugged is a very foundational book for me, and Rand had a philosophy called objectivism, and in those two books in particular, they're fiction, they're works of fiction, but they're designed to lay out the architecture for her philosophy. So a lot of people read those books, and they either hate them or they love them. The people who love them, they, they tend to want to be Randian heroes. And Randian heroes are radically individualistic. They're typically innovators, creators, builders. And they're kind of called, referred to in Atlas Shrugged, anyways as the immovable movers. Now, this is a super inspiring book. I have a dollar sign tattooed on my chest. Because of Atlas Shrugged stands for free trade and a free mind. <laughs> that being said, I'm not an objectivist. I'm not a card-carrying fan club member of, of of the Ayn Rand fan club, which probably sounds weird, but Rand wrote a lot of nonfiction books as well. And one of them was the epistemology of objectivism. And an epistemological test uh, text is essentially sort of the the rule book for a philosophy and rand was so <laughs> interesting that she not only formed her own philosophy truly like laid the foundational tenets of her philosophy she wrote her own epistemology for it and it's i think it's fascinating because it starts basically from the ground up and talks about how you know as as we're kids how we form our ideas of concepts and that translates to language and you know platonic ideals and all this other stuff but but one of the really key things about her philosophy of objectivism and she says this very explicitly is that it's meant to be her philosophy because it's 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 a philosophy of the individual now what's ironic and kind of hypocritical here is that in rand's personal history she kind of ends up having this sort of odd group of people around her called the collective that depending on how you look at it, it gets a, little, gets a little cultish, and Randians can be that way a little bit sometimes, I think, personally. Don't mean to offend anybody, but it's, you know, anytime you get really passionate about something with a group of people, it can get a little bit weird, so I'll just leave it at that. But but her, her own stance on it is that she's so radically individualistic that she advocates in her own philosophy for the individual to create their own philosophy. And that's really where I could never, like, I guess I guess I am a fan of objectivism in that, st- in that regard because she herself is saying, don't be an objectivist. Look at it, listen to it, but go out and drive, steer your own destiny. Now, why am I talking about this? Well, in the context of Code of the West, what I really want to drive
1: home here is that I'm not trying to create... A like a group of people who just want to hang out and be a tribe, what i all I'm trying to do
0: with code of the West is be a mirror, I guess for all of for myself and anybody who might want to listen to think about why we do the things that we do and or and why we don't do the things that we should do and I am a radical individualist in that stance, and that's part of the reason why the idea of the cowboy resonated with me so much is that. I do believe in selfishness. I do believe that, you know, you basically have to walk through life as if you're sitting on an airplane. What I what I'm saying is, it's like you got to put your own oxygen mask on before helping others. That is selfish, but it's also practical. So I don't think that selfishness is inherently, or or inherently has to be a destructive act. If anything, I actually think that it tends to benefit a system of people when everybody understands what their individual Incentives are and and act uh,
1: congruously with that. So, going back to this thing about courage, then I I think it's it's odd to me how we we
0: admire these figures. Like I was saying before, I went on that that bit of that (laughs) contextual tangent. We admire these people who who are individuals, even if we don't view them that way. I mean, almost every hero. Or heroic story, fairy tale, Disney movie is about one person, sort of finding their own path, and usually in the face of criticism and certainly adversity, moving moving forward and achieving their own end. It resonates with people all over the world. It resonates through time, through history. Some of these stories are. Sorry, I'm getting some coffee here. Some of these stories are hundreds, if not thousands, of years
1: old. So how can something like that that's so culturally ubiquitous across the world not translate
0: to direct action in our own lives? So what do I mean, what do I mean by that? Well, we have this thing, this tendency I think as humans when we're in groups of people, these groups of people that we've gathered with or have agreed to work in tandem with to achieve mutual ends, like a company or
1: uh like say, a political campaign we we tend to how do i how do I put this the there's a there's a, a fear of expulsion that tends
0: to override the hope for acceptance if that makes any sense, so we want to be accepted, we want to find these people that we we agree with, you know maybe that's code of the West, maybe that's black rifle or uh you know uh, nike i don't know some other company but uh we we want to find that place where we think we fit in and where we think we belong but when we do find that group or that level of acceptance
1: then this fear of 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 expulsion tends to take over so an example if you're in a group of people and you're trying to achieve the same
0: end and somebody says something that you strongly feel may not be the right course of action or you have questions but nobody else in the room is asking questions or saying anything so I I think justifiably you're thinking well okay no one else is saying anything so I'm the only person that is thinking this so I'm not going to say anything but why you know I, I The irony is, uh, my experience through 37 years, is that most of the time, if you're thinking it, somebody, at least one other person in the room is thinking the same thing. Worst, I guess, best case scenario, the whole room's thinking it, but nobody nobody wants to say anything. Why? Because it's this fear of, I guess, expulsion or being singled out. The fact that most people's worst fear is public speaking, I think, says a lot about this the idea of being one person in a mass of people with the, to which that mass is focusing is a greater fear to most people in our country than the idea of death.
1: And I just, I'm not offended or bothered by it. I'm just curious because
0: to me, I look at it and and i had a fear of public speaking at one point or let me let me rephrase that i sucked at it and <laughs> i wanted to get better at it uh, there was a there was a speech in junior high when i was in 7th grade for some reason i wanted to run for student government cuz it seemed like a it just seemed like the thing that you did if i you know like I, i've watched enough movies and read enough stories about uh young people that that seemed like what you're supposed to do and I didn't really have a lot of friends. I had maybe three or four good, decent friends at the time, and definitely wouldn't wouldn't have been. Oh, I'm gonna sneeze.
1: <laughs> oh, oh man. Oh, man. oh sorry. Yeah, I uh allergies I had a sneeze there.
0: <laughs> the Garage Band actually shut itself off because they thought something happened. Um. Anyways, I uh so I. I I wasn't a popular kid, but I, w- I wasn't even, like, unpopular. I wasn't bullied or anything. I just was not on the radar. So I decided I was going to run for student body government, and I got up in front of my class, and I think maybe eighth grade as well, and just froze up. I would practiced my speech. I'd done it in front of a mirror. I I mean, like, I, I still don't even know what the point of student body government is, honestly, like, because I, I really approached it from, like, a political campaign where I was trying to determine what the needs were of 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 my class and my, you know, school community. And it just it actually just truly seems like a popularity contest in hindsight. But I started trying to talk and I sounded like Yoda. I, I was like, you know, Chris Hunt I am here to run. Student body government, please. Vote me for. And just flubbed it. And my response to it, it there was kind of like a zero there really wasn't a lot to lose because no one knew who I was. At the very least, now people were aware that I uh, existed, even though I completely made a fool of myself, I guess. But instead, I decided to enroll that next semester in an acting class through the communications uh, line of classes and extracurricular activities. And ended up getting the lead in, a, in the play that we were preparing. And it turned out I really loved acting. Like, I really enjoyed it. And I felt very comfortable being in front of people when I wasn't portraying myself. And that was a great kind of crutch or set of training wheels to work from. And over the course of junior high and high school, I ended up doing a lot of acting and then got really comfortable with public speaking. Comfortable in the sense that I realized that, oh shit, there's not really anything to worry about here. I'm just I'm just talking like I normally talk. I might just have to prepare uh, talking points you know, uh, but, you know, really wasn't any different than just talking to my friends. And then that kind of trickled out into just normal everyday life, because I think that I I forget how terrified I was to talk to people prior to that point in my life. You know, I was very much a wallflower. And when I do remember it or think about it, it, it really wasn't, the fear that I felt was more of an anxiety, I think. It wasn't true fear. Because the the fear would sort of indicate some sort of awareness of the cost of, 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 of risking something. And I couldn't even have told you what the risk I felt was in trying to talk to people. I just didn't know how to do it. And so I sort of set about trying to figure out how to do it. And... My my way of tricking myself after all that time doing the acting and everything. By the time I was in high school, I just realized, oh, I just I just talk to people the way that I hope other people would talk to me. I just go ahead and walk up and start asking questions. And like, if you don't act weird, people just respond like a normal person, like you know them. And it's it's just a ask a question. Or whatever. It's a, it's a it's a fun little life hack, honestly, because it it just makes it really easy. To, to get to know people and have a lot of people, you know, in your life, you know, even if you're not best friends with people, you just, you're kind of just, uh, you're able to move through a lot of different spaces in the world if you have the, that ability. And I don't know if you would call that courage, but I think that it's, it was sort of the start of something for me to understand that even if you can't call it courage, there definitely was an anxiety, an unnamed, ambiguous anxiety that I was aware of and fighting against. And you know, like I said, when I think about it in the past, I'm like, I, I can't even tell you what I was truly afraid of because ostracized, being ostracized didn't really affect me because I, I really wasn't a part of any social group or class in in school. I wasn't. I wasn't one of the rich kids. I wasn't cool. I didn't play sports. My mom didn't have money, but like I wasn't wearing um trash bags or anything. You know, it wasn't like, you know, that terrible. So I kind of just didn't have anything to lose, I guess. But as I got older, clearly I had things to lose, you know, as I had different careers and different jobs and I always I always felt like in like corporate Environments. It was always very fascinating to me. I think of specifically Starbucks. I, I when I didn't go to college, I ended up getting a job at Starbucks as a barista when I was uh, nineteen, and I think it was nineteen. <laughs> yeah, and uh, I uh, very quickly remembered what it had felt like to want to succeed and and to to achieve. And this is about the time that I read Atlas Shrugged, actually, and. I I just decided I wanted to be the best Starbucks employee I could be and what I thought was the best Starbucks employee, which to me was be as competent in in my skill set as I could and then learn as much about the intricacies of the business as I could. And at the time, they were just kind of starting to really focus on the drive-thru model, which hadn't been a thing prior to 2003, 2004. And... I ended up finding out who the the highest performing store manager was in that district at the time, a guy named Rick Cartwright. And he'd come from McDonald's and he, he was just, he was a very, he's very knowledgeable, very skilled, very personable, and very passionate about, uh, about Starbucks and his, his, his career and his job and mentoring people. So I asked him if I could come and work at his store and if he could teach me everything that he knew. As a barista, you know, and I told him I want to be a store manager, and he was like, "Great, yeah, I'll hire you. I'll, I'll bring you over." So I helped open that store, and and Rick was the most probably one of the, if not the most formative mentor I ever had outside of my mom and family members, because he he did exactly what he said he was going to do. He he created a structure for me to fail fast in, and so I told him, you know, if I mess up, just give me the feedback on the spot, and I will. I'll correct it, and, I'll, I'll, and we'll move on. And so very, very quickly, I was able to learn from this guy and maximize my opportunities at Starbucks, so much so that I was able to become a store manager by the time I was, I think, what was I, 23? 22 or 23, kind of all blurs together. And uh, it, I, I really, truly thought I was going to work at Starbucks the rest of my life. I, I'd been able to meet Jim McDonald, who was the the CEO of of Starbucks at the time before the recession hit, and uh, Howard came back. I think he came back the first time on that one. As I take a sip of black rifle coffee, um, <laughs> but um, I he'd asked me what I wanted to do at Starbucks, what my final career goal was, and I told him I wanted to be CEO, and he laughed and gave me his card and. So I really thought I was on the path. And, and I think a lot of the people that I worked with, if you'd ask them, I was sort of like the, the golden child. I, it, was, it was just expected that I would rise through the ranks at Starbucks because that's what I wanted to do. And I was sort of this obsessive force of nature that wasn't trying to trample anybody on the way up. It, it, quite the opposite. I was trying to do everything I could in my power to help bolster the people around me and train and teach. What I was getting from Rick, and almost real time, I was trying to train everybody else, and um, I there got to this point where I started really learning about corporate bureaucracy for the first time, and Starbucks is starting to struggle a little bit when the recession wasn't announced, but was the the, the effects of it were being felt, and so spending was going down. Starbucks had had a uh, pretty Monumental spurt of growth throughout the early 2000s. And it was just sort of like clockwork. And it was a publicly traded company at the time. And, you know, profits are a huge thing. And it started to not be as dependable. Like the numbers were still going up over the year, but it wasn't the percentage growth that they'd become accustomed to. So the response was to essentially say the store managers weren't doing their jobs. They, they cut our ability to have a what was called an, an admin day which was like a monday where you could sit down do your scheduling planning do reviews they took that away they said we weren't being efficient with our time and now we were going to have to do all that stuff while either on the clock doing other things or you know we were salaried employees so the implication really kind of felt more that you were supposed to do it and not get paid for it uh, or not you know, not do it within a forty hour work week, rather, and and i i I rolled with it, i you know, I didn't complain, I just kind of was like, all right, you know, I'm you know in my early twenties and I've been uh, uh, given the responsibility and the opportunity to run a million dollar a year store, so I'm just gonna roll with it, and then it it got to the point where things started to get much more micro like the the things were trickling down from the top and hitting the district level and one of the things about my store was because of who trained me and how much I'd worked in other stores around the district when I had uh, put my store together I'd been allowed to go and essentially ask anybody that I wanted to if they wanted to work in my store and I think people underestimated how many people that I knew, <laughs> because I went to everybody that I knew was a top performer in all these other stores in different categories, and I just built out this team of people who were not all the same. They were actually all very, very, very different, but as we were assembling the 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 team of the Bad News Bears, basically, I kind of was able to to get the people that I knew were really good on bar, that were really good at... Multitasking under the drive-through, you know, et cetera, et cetera, and and essentially put this team together, and so as a result, we'd have these secret shoppers that would come through, and you'd get scored. You wouldn't know when they were coming, and my store very very rapidly started becoming the store with the you know the fastest times through the drive-through, through through the register, in the lobby, and then uh, highest customer. Service response. You know, we were asking the right questions. You know, giving the right amount of attention, talking to people. You know, we were doing it rather efficiently, but we were able to to I was able to direct and create SOPs uh, against the the customer survey, the the secret survey that were genuine, but were also like you know, you know, you ask the open ended question, like basically just modeled it every time, no matter what. Like, hi, welcome to Starbucks. What can I get for you? Oh yeah, okay, cool. So, you know, uh I had everybody asking like open-ended questions that they would get an extended answer from the customer while so they could they could type things into the register basically. So, it would be like, you uh you on your way to work? Like instead of like, "Hey, how's the weather?" or you know, uh it it created this environment where it was a nice dichotomy, I think, a nice balance of genuine interest on our part and it made the customers feel valued. And we also got to know the customers as a result of these questions. Like we, it went from being like, oh, yeah, on your way to work to being like, oh, wow. So you're cutting a little close this morning. Like, you know, because after time you realize, because we were a brand new store when we opened. So the people who started coming there, we had no model. I mean, a handful of people popped in from other stores. But um, the, you would think that this would be a great thing that, that like a new store manager, first time store manager, brand new store getting getting these high numbers and scores would be pretty awesome it was actually the opposite so because of because of the struggles that were happening you know the the no admin days the um the frustration that was being felt by the other store managers i was single in my early 20s and i could work 70 hours a week and i did the people who had real lives they were struggling because They were trying to balance their their personal lives with work. They couldn't necessarily keep up with things, and so their scores were um, not as good, let's say. And it got to the point where the leaders that I was under were asking me to slow down and not be as courteous. And this was kind of the beginning of the end for me at Starbucks, if I'm totally honest. because i kind of knew that i was faced with a choice the like the mission statement and the guiding principles of starbucks at the time the, for, for, they ran totally counter to what i was being asked to do that, like this and also if i were owning the company if i owned starbucks and if i was the the person that was steering the the, the whole ship i wouldn't i wouldn't want to lower the bar of quality across the board, just so more people could be consistently okay, rather than try to continue to be exceptional. And I said that back to my boss at the time. And that was not really, that was not the answer that they were expecting or hoping for. And this continued to happen in small ways, where I would make a calculation based on what was, you know, what was correct by the mission statement and the guiding principles and and my own rational thought where it's like, okay, I'm not going to damage the business to hit a certain quota on something that only accounts for 0.05% of our, uh, our weekly budget. You know, we'd have like, we'd have things like, uh, you know, uh, uh, drinks that needed to be pushed, you know, that would be a part of uh, new new marketing schemes or something. Like, like I think there was a thing that was called Vivano and it was uh a uh like a blended drink with protein that had bananas in it. Well they couldn't get the banana orders right. We would, you know, say we ha- they would have us required us to do like thirty Vivanos in a week. Well, for whatever reason they were having issues with the frozen bananas, so we would get like fifteen bananas. You know, so from the beginning you're not going to hit the thirty. And there were, uh, I mean, these things were, I mean, there's a reason you don't have them at Starbucks stores anymore. Let's just say that. And and I was like, cool, you know, we'll, we'll sell through all, all of what we got. Like I had no, I had no question about that. And that's what I would tell the team is like, look, you know, we're, I don't know what's going on with the banana situation, but like, well, we, we got 15, we'll sell 15. You know, that, that, that's, that to me is good enough. That's, we're going to sell through a hundred percent what we've got. And there was a day when. It was a Saturday during peak, and my leader showed up and was like, Why aren't you selling Vivanos? And I explained that, well, you know, we're out of these bananas. uh, And, you know, so we're just continuing to sell the other things at a faster rate and with a higher satisfaction from the customers instead. And that was not the proper answer. He uh, wanted me to go across, like, take myself off the floor at a peak time frame and my job was to kind of conduct the orchestra you know to we called it deployment where everybody stayed locked off in their jobs and rather than let people kind of go and assist other people at their leisure i would say okay i need to make sure the lobby's covered so and so you walk away from taking orders in the drive through you go get milk i'll step in take the orders you know that's the simplified way of saying it so i uh I pushed back, Um, I pushed back and I was like, I, you're going to suffer. And I could speak to the data. I'm like, you remove this body, my body or anybody's, you know, uh, presence at that point. You're going to slow down. We're not going to be able to hit 30 transactions in a half hour. Uh, We're going to suffer overall. We're going to probably lose, uh, I would say, I mean, probably five of those transactions in the half hour. Which could amount to anywhere from five to ten dollars a transaction. So let's say you know uh, twenty-five to almost fifty dollars of of um, potential loss against one five-dollar drink because we were selling like one an hour. Basically, the Vivano didn't matter. Go buy the bananas, and I had some. This is all on the floor, and um, I said something. I kind of lost my temper at that point, and I I had been very very calm about the whole thing for months, and essentially cha- challenged my district manager and said, you know, do you do you always do what you're told to do, despite it being rational or logical? That's uh, that's a nicer way of what I said, and. um he just told me to go get the bananas. So I went and got the bananas. And I pretty much knew I was going to get fired at that point. Like I knew the end was coming because uh, I was making everybody look bad. I was making him, the other district manager in the area, because I was not slowing down. I was not being ruder to my customers. And therefore, everybody else was having to compete with me. And the reason why I continued to do it is because for one, I knew it was right. And I mean, right as in. Logically, it was right, it was morally right, and it was right by the business overall. It wasn't right by my particular bosses who were doing their best to manage the situation to the best of their abilities. And in this case, I was correct. They did fire me. And they they uh, they used a... Uh, I was late delivering a review by a week to somebody, which... People weren't getting because they had killed the admin days. People weren't getting reviews for months at this point. You know, months they were late by months, and so you know, I it was a it was basically a technicality. They 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 needed me gone, and I I got the phone call at the at, at my at my shop to to come in that you know they needed to talk to me, and I was like, oh okay, I'm getting fired. So I got off the phone and I went out to the shift supervisor that was going to be taking over. um For the next shift, and it's like, hey, here's the deal. I'm pretty sure I'm getting fired, and you're gonna need to start covering all my shifts for the next two weeks because we only scheduled about two weeks out. Start covering all my shifts. Try to try to you know try to don't panic or anything. Like everything's gonna be fine, but um, I don't I don't think I'm gonna be here after today. So you need to make sure those shifts are covered. Take a deep breath. They're gonna they're probably gonna get an interim store manager in or someone to cover two stores for a little bit. So, uh, you know, take care, don't worry, it'll be okay. And everybody's like, there's no way, there's no way they would do that, because they were operating under the same information that I was, which was we were kicking ass. And I was like, yep, I know, but uh, just trust me, pretty sure this is what's happening. So I went down, saw my old district manager, who was also one of my mentors, Brenda Smith. We talked, we joked, I went into the office, I got fired, came out, smoked a cigarette in the curb, kept joking and talking to Brenda, and then... She finally asked me, like, what happened in there? I'm like, oh, I got fired. And she about lost her, I I mean, her hair looked like it was about ready to fall out. She was so surprised, uh, both in how I was taking it and the fact that it had happened. And I explained it to her, and um, I never kept up with uh, my former bosses, the, the, the two that were district managers at the time. But if I remember correctly, one of them ended up becoming a store manager, like, sort of stepped down from being a DM. And uh, I don't know what happened to the other one. Uh, probably went on to a different corporation. But um, best thing that ever happened to me because it was the. I'd stuck to my guns and it was the catalyst for me going full tilt into comics. Although I, it still took a, a number of years to be able to make it my primary source of income. At that point, I was like, well, I, I, w- I was all in on Starbucks, even though I was still trying in the background to learn how to make comics. And I was talking to Paul, but, um, I, uh, I, I, just, I, I had believed in the institution and the organization that I worked for Starbucks. And my mom would always tell me that, you know, you, you don't always get to choose who you work for. And sometimes you might have a great boss. Sometimes you might have an okay boss. And sometimes you might genuinely have a not great boss. And so you've got to kind of find your way through that you know either you stick it out and wait for that person to maybe you know for for the bad ones to go away or you hope for the the good ones to stick around but it's all always kind of fleeting and uh, shifting like there's the, like li- our lives and our reality are fluid there there's no constant anything there's there's always things that are showing up to disrupt the stability or the calmness and the sooner that you get used to the fact that life is actually truly ambiguous and and constantly shifting under your feet i think the better off most of us would be uh, certainly for me that was this whole thing was a learning experience because i I'd, i had felt protected and sheltered by my by my own ability to execute at starbucks and as it turns out that was not that was not a guarantee of anything if anything excelling tends to put a target on the back of your head in truth and you know and to bring this all back to courage i'm not saying that i was courageous in this or learning how to act and speak in front of people but i do think that cuz i mean i still think of i still think of courage or courageous acts as these big things but i think i have got to you know cut myself a break a little bit and and remind myself that you know that's not what most people would do. And, and this is, this is kind of what I'm trying to get to with this whole idea of courage, live with courage. I guess I am sort of advocating for these kinds of small things, you know, where it was a lot easier for me to be who I was at 23 with no family than it would be to be at 43 with a family in debt and a kid in school and college or whatever. Like, you know what I mean? Like, that's why I say it's not really that courageous because the only person I was competing against in terms of that anxiety versus the choosing the rational, what I would consider the rational action was just myself. Like there were, there was no other part of that. uh, there was no, nobody else going into the calculus of me t- making my own decisions about that. It, I think, it, you know, it would take real courage for somebody to know that they were standing up to somebody that for the right reasons, knowing that like there's going to be more of a sacrifice, more of a cost. I would say the sacrifice that I made, and I had it, we were, had this question posed to us as a group uh, this past week you know, what have you sacrificed for, you know, the career that you have? And I would say I, I sacrificed, you know, emotional security, I, I sacrificed creating a space in my life for another person, you know, and maybe that would change at some point, but uh you know now i've gone so long i've gone so long rather being being the machine that makes things both for myself and for the 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 entities that i'm working with that like that's what i like i, I that's what i like a lot it's kind of hard for me to imagine what uh what it would look like to uh, i don't know like have another person in my life but even that's kind of its own thing you know with a lot of uh a lot of a lot of places in our culture it's it's that you know you're not supposed to be single you're not supposed to be off doing your own thing too much you the expectation is that you have a family
1: that you develop the next generation i, I mean to me i've always felt like my goal is to use
0: my career to help inspire and educate
1: and mentor people. You know, and that would be my way of creating positive growth in the in
0: the world in the, in a community or a business however you want to look at it. But um you know, I mean that's I, I've known a lot of people who got married, went to college, got the corporate job just because that's what they were told to do. Even if they didn't want to do it, they did it because that's what the expectation was. And that's where you see people kind of, kind of losing it a little bit in their, their middle-aged period, you know, in their forties and maybe even in the thirties. Um Excuse me. Uh, You know, you start seeing those people who didn't do what they wanted to do. They did what they were told and it, you know, it reaches a point where they just can't, they can't keep it together anymore. And, and I think what the worst thing is, is a lot of those people still don't really know why they're acting the way that they do. You know, they're going to therapy, they're going to counseling, they're trying to find themselves at 40, which I applaud. I think, you know, it's never too late. But, you know, it, it's not something that we seem to teach, you know, young people. It, once again, it, it's, it's like when you're young, you're told you can do anything that you want. But then, as you get older, if that thing that you want to do doesn't really jive with the picture of success in the in the minds of the adults in your life, a lot of times that they're saying, "Well, no, no, you can't really do what you want," but you can you can choose from this list of what you want to do, which is not the same thing. And I think that what I'm trying to get at here with you know thinking about live with courage, y- yeah, part of that I I, I would say is like. Go do things that make you feel uncomfortable, like go climb a mountain. Uh, and it doesn't have to be Everest. like I, I can't tell you what a what a positive mental state I found myself in after I got done doing that, that trail maintenance stint in the Wenatches, and going up and down up and down, moving trees off off the trail, cutting trees, learning, learning what my threshold for discomfort was. But also, like, you know, that doesn't, it doesn't have to be anything so visceral. It can be learning a new skill, taking a new class. I, I think having the courage to, to just admit that you want to do something that you don't have any knowledge of or skill in and being willing to, to, be a, uh, to not be an expert in something when you're older. Because I think, I think when you get older, you kind of just view yourself as being competent. You've lived long enough that you just know what you're doing. And we don't tend to want to put ourselves in spaces where we're not the resident expert. And and if we do find ourselves in those situations, we do everything we can to rationalize it as being an external issue, not not within ourselves. So I think kind of maintaining that elasticity in our brains and trying new things and uh, learning new skills is a is is is, is very key to continuing to to exist you know on this plane to, to being alive I think that you've you've gotta you gotta build that kind of thing in but that's a that's a kind of courage I think to to be able to be okay with not knowing everything and to being able to ask for
1: help even I think that that's a it's a really it's a really strong skill to have that and listening you know if you can
0: if you can sit and listen to somebody for more than 60 seconds without trying to find a moment to just insert your own view, you can truly sit and listen to someone talk and absorb their inform- like the information that that they're espousing. Oh man, I really I really feel like that is that is the number 1 superpower that I wish everybody had. Uh you know, I, I mean, I gosh, I feel like so much of my my life and, and and where I ended up is just a result of of having learned how to do that, and I don't know where I picked it up, other than I think that everybody in my family talks a lot, and so there tends to be uh you know a tendency to just not be able to get a word in edgewise, especially with my mom's family, but you know listening to my grandparents, listening to my mom, my dad, my stepdad there's just so much information to be had. And and I feel like that's how we used to do things. It was, you know, information was orally transferred to kids or other people in villages. Because, you know, I mean, like, it, it, it's funny because I'm all, I'm all for a high literacy rate. But people who aren't literate have to learn from an exchange, an actual auditory exchange of information, typically, you know. And I think that's part of the reason why you had things like, you know, Plato's Republic, Were you know at the time that that text was wrote written, you know he's saying like yeah you can only be an expert in one thing. Well yeah because you you basically had to just sit and listen to somebody (laughs) as they remembered what to tell you. There was no possibility to sit down and go to the library, go to the internet, and just pull the relevant information that you needed for the subject you were trying to learn. I still think that you know there is something to be said for mastering only a handful of things, but. You can be pretty good at a lot of things, especially in this day and age, if you, if you just have that ability to acknowledge your own, um, I guess the, the absence of information on the subject. You know, to be able to to go into something looking for the information. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, as we're as we're talking about courage for Code of the West, I just want you to think about that kind of stuff. It's not necessarily just doing something that's th- physically threatening. You know, it's not just riding the horse or uh, trying to keep the herd from stampeding in a thunderstorm or being a lineman. You know, these things all do require courage and competence, but I think it's more important that we exhibit it on these daily smaller levels of when you're in the group and somebody says something uh, at work or something that And it doesn't, and I'm not not suggesting it has to be something dire either. I'm like, I'm not even talking about like, it's, you know, company meeting about whether or not, you know, things, you know, every employee should be vaccinated or unvaccinated. It's a hot, you know, hot button uh, topic, obviously. And I'm not saying that you wait for something like that, even I'm saying like, if there's a conversation about the course of a project or if there is a conversation happening about uh, SOPs for the, I don't know, the pizza place you work at, like if something's not right, say something. I, I would, I would advocate that you ask a question when you do and be like, "Hey, you know, I'm not super sure if I understand this correctly. Is this, is this what you're saying? Excuse me." That's also a great way if you are kind of like freaked out about just saying something about like making a declarative statement, just ask for clarification because a lot of times that's, it's not very threatening, but the question in and of itself leads to uh, different possible solutions, if that makes sense. And yeah, it still takes a lot of courage to, because asking the question, asking a question implies to the group, you would think that you don't know what you're doing when in reality, like just, Everybody's operating on a different wavelength and it's if you're slowing everybody down and you're just being obnoxious about asking a shit ton of questions, well, that's a little bit different. I'm not saying don't pay attention. I'm just saying that it's uh there's a lot of different ways to do this. And I think that especially in the corporate environment, this is something that most corporations would benefit from greatly because and and you know, Take this with a grain of salt because I told you a story where, like, I got fired for
1: doing it in the long run. Now, where I would, I would sort of want to clarify this for anybody listening is that you
0: know I'm probably telling you the most subjective version of this story. I'm telling it from my perspective. Where do I think it was a bit unfair? Yeah, absolutely. So bear with that bear bear that in mind that you know the other people who I was talking to they're not the villains in their story they're the heroes so you know you've got to be aware of the fact that everybody's going to try to operate under that that idea that they're not the bad guy they're going to try to find
1: a way to rationalize the whole thing and and so you know again I'm not I'm not suggesting Ooh, sorry, I had a sneeze again. I didn't want the computer to shut me off.
0: <laughs> um I'm not suggesting you just start going and kicking tables over for the sake of doing it. 100% do not do that. Uh you're not going to get very far with that strategy. But but being involved and being uh uh I guess Socratic about it. I mean, so the Socratic method is is essentially you're you're trying to steer towards a certain outcome in, in the most extreme cases of this. By asking a question. So you ask a question kind of under the assumption that if the person is thinking rationally, they're going to answer in a way that you can then continue the query and you're almost like whittling down to what in your mind is the only rational solution. Um, But you just basically you just you just keep asking questions Um, like I'm trying to think of a way to Give this as an example, like you know, if somebody came and said, uh, "Say you're a construction worker. And you say you're hanging drywall, and somebody, like a, a project manager or even better, a superintendent, shows up that's never been on a job site before, and uh, comes over as you're uh, you're setting up, and uh, let he this this superintendent tells you that uh, you've got to put the drywall up right now." and then the electrician's going to come. Well, you know that the electrician needs to have access to the interior of the wall to run that wire. So you could say, "Well, that's stupid, you dumb shit. You got to get the electrician here first, then I'll put the drywall up." Or what you could do is like, "Oh, well hey, so how's the electrician going to be able to put his wire in there? How's he going to be able to run that wire?" And then the superintendent might go, "Oh, oh, that's right. The electrician hasn't come yet. Okay, never mind. Hold hold on that uh maybe move over to this other area cuz yeah he's already run the wire through that cool if you just if you just come at him and you're like hey dumb shit he's not he's not going to he's not going to react well um and maybe you do ask hey you know how's the electrician going to do this and the guy's like doesn't matter to me and you're like oh well what's you know is this going to affect my bottom line you know cuz i'm going to have to come back in and you know patch this area you know it's going to be a, it's going to be a change order uh then then he might be like oh well shoot you know what i'm saying like you can, you can kind of keep asking the question and you kind of get to the point where you're getting the right answer from the person without them feeling like you're just coming at them and attacking them it doesn't always work but it's not a bad way of doing it you just ask the question and and also i got to tell you it's not the worst thing to, to have people thinking that you're uh, kind of an idiot like, like, like it, it's not bad to be underestimated. I guess is what I'm saying. Um, not all the time, anyways. So, I don't know. I mean, like, I mean, I'm kind of wanting to wrap it up here. Like, I mean, I think I could dive more into the code of the west version of this, but, but this is really kind of what I'm getting at. You know, I, I don't think, I, I, I don't want it to be a rule or a law, but it is a strong suggestion that I think. I think living this way, and that's why I put it as the first one. I, th- I think it it actually kind of just changes everything about your life when you
1: when you start thinking about what fear holds you back from that fear of, ex- of of being expelled and
0: the fear of not doing what you know the world thinks is the right thing. Now, I mean, nobody in my life told me not to be a cartoonist when I wanted to do it, but the key people in my life told me what the challenges with it were going to be, at least to the best of their knowledge. You know, they didn't know, nobody understood the nuances of comics, including myself, but they knew that there was no conventional path, there was no degree to, to get it, or even like a trade school to go to at the time. It was a complete question mark. It was complete fog, gray area, you know, be, it's. I mean, it would be like your kids coming to you and telling you, "Hey, i i don't I don't know how I'm going to do this, but I want to get to space and and like not go to college to be an aerospace engineer. I'm going to figure it out, though. It, it's kind of hard to wrap your head around. So credit to my family for being like, "Hey, have a fallback, but good luck, Godspeed," because. I had explained it to people that, like, I knew I was going to regret not attempting this. I was, I was, had the wherewithal to know that um, people, I'd had people, I was always around older people, so I'd had these people telling me for years, since I was a child, like, oh, I wish I'd done this, oh, I wish I'd made this different decision in my life. It, I think it's really common. If you listen to people, which is why listening is the other key here, if you listen to people throughout your life, you hear this a lot. You hear people talking about what, what might have been. And it's an incredibly, incredibly insidious and common thing, I think. And, and I think it all really comes back to that courage thing. Like, it is not easy to do what is right. And it's certainly not easy to do what's right by you when the rest of the world is going to give you all the reasons why you can't. I I kind of, I was lucky in the sense that I had this realization when I was single, when I was young. And, and I also understood that if I was going to do it, it's probably going to be, it's probably going to have to remain in that state for a while. What I mean by that is that As soon as you introduce somebody else into the system, you know, i.e., a relationship, you you are agreeing to ride shotgun with somebody. In the best case scenario, from my perspective, like you can no longer only think of yourself as an individual if you're willing to give up individual rights to be with another person. Now, I'm not even just talking about marriage. I'm saying that if you're choosing to be with somebody, partner with someone. Married, unmarried, whatever. In theory, you know, you should only partner with somebody when your life, your existence is better as that partnership. Like each of you brings something to the table, the other one doesn't have or needs. And, you know, collectively, the two of you as a
1: pair make this better form of existence, you know, together. And I I looked at it from this perspective. If I found that person, well, then my version of what
0: good is is going to change and it and and it might not be this hypothetical achievement that i I'm, I'm striving for but if i'm still tracking on this idea that i'm going to regret not seeing this thing through to the end well i'm that i'm going to regret it still and then that person is going to be the thing that i probably end up blaming for uh for not doing it or not achieving it so i mean i had girlfriends and i had relationships Throughout this, not as much as I probably would have other excuse me otherwise, but um it always kind of came back to the fact that I, I needed to work, I needed to deal with the ambiguity of my 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 choice, and you know I, you know I'm going to keep going a little bit because now that I've said ambiguity, I think this is really key to this whole thing. Uh, pursuing a career that doesn't have a definable path is inherently ambiguous. This means that you have to constantly be assessing, reassessing the situations that you find yourself in. So, you make a choice to do a certain project at a certain a certain price. That's all on you. It's it's not, it's not signing up for uh, a job interview, getting the job at a certain salary, and then waiting for your yearly review, your bonus, your increase in pay. A lot of that stuff is. Independent of you, regardless of your performance. I mean, if you don't perform well, you're not probably going to get anything. But um, but even then, it doesn't mean that you're uh, obligated to get a lot of this. When you're doing it for yourself, there is no path. There is no clear, clearly defined ladder to ascend. There is just sussing it out, basically. So ambiguity breaks people's brains. I just want to say that. Like that is a thing that especially in a normal on-the-rails business, uh, people cannot handle. And, and I guess, you know, if, if you don't know what the word ambiguous means or you know, or ambiguity, take a second to look it up because I'm not going to give you the Webster's Dictionary definition of it. Um, but, but it basically just means you're kind of in the fog at times. You, you don't know, you can't clearly know what the next right step is you just have to keep moving forward, and I think what's really key with that, with the moving forward thing, is you have, to, you have to have as much information at your disposal as you can get your hands on. You have to know what you're about. You have to know what your intent is. You have to know what you've been tasked with, and you got to keep moving forward. you got to keep putting one foot in front of the other. Now, where this fails in corporations is that ambiguity, ambiguity Tends to require this individual, this individualistic mindset because you can't, you're not waiting for someone to tell you what to do. And that is more or less how you succeed in a corporation, that, that especially a large one. Like you, you don't want to rock the boat. You don't want people acting out of unison as well. I mean, to be totally fair, like everybody's got to be kind of doing the right thing according to the plan. But the, the reality is, though, is that th- there's never really a point where anybody has 100% all of the information to make the 100% correct decision with. The best you can do is collect data from as many points as possible and try to understand the complex entangled system and then keep moving forward. And uh, that ambiguity, I think, coupled with this fear of expulsion for uh, speaking out or asking questions creates really weird environments. And that's what I think when people say like, oh, you know, it's a super corporate super corporate world or something goes sideways. Um it's it's not actually there's nothing inherently wrong with being a corporation at all. It's just a it's just a structure, it's just a framework. It's an organization chart. It's nothing more than that. Now there's policies that come into play that might be Uh, you know HR related or just performance related but at the end of the day it's just a it's just an it's just an entangled group of people that that all have in theory a certain skill set that they're a resident expert in and they're they're acting in tandem with other people with different skill sets to achieve the same end and that's, I mean, that's not overly complex. I mean, it, it gets complex if you're trying to understand each individual nuanced role, and and then try to hold all that in your brain. Yeah, that gets really, really wild. You can't be an expert in all those different things. That's why you have to have this sort of hierarchy and organization. But where the behavior comes from always comes from the individuals. It 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 it, it comes from what you incentivize as a leader. It comes from what you do or don't say to your leaders. And I think that that's how you lose the soul of something. And and that's where something just becomes a paycheck. And I think that we should never, ever let ourselves get to a point as individuals where, you know, the thing that we're spending the majority of our waking hours on, i.e. work, you know, a career, we spend more time at work with the people that we work with than most of our families. I know I certainly do. Uh, I very rarely see my family. I do a horrible
1: job of communicating with my family, which I need to get better about. And, you know, so why do we do that for systems and companies that bother or scare us or stress us out? Like, that's, that's what boggles
0: my mind. You know, like if if you are unable to wrap your head around the structure of the thing that you that you are a part of are you truly unable or have you just not asked the right questions have you not have you perhaps assumed that things were a certain way based on um what you what your personal framework of 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 things and reality has been maybe maybe it's worth just asking you know how does this one work what's this what's this thing all about you know so but if you do figure out and come to understand what it is that, you know, is bothering you it cannot be resolved, then why are, I think it takes a lot of courage to be able to say, you know, well, this isn't for me. You know, I need to step away or I need to go find what is good for me. I don't think people really operate on what is good for them because they, I don't think they truly know what they're looking for most of the time. I think most of us are just looking for the the good job, the title, the LinkedIn profile, or you know you're just content to just make enough money to pay your bills and hang out, go fishing, you know, go ride horses or whatever you know like there's a whole lot of different ways to be happy, but I think it's really key that you know what makes you happy and why
1: and and then the crowd and society be damned uh but if you're just reacting to
0: the world, I don't think you're ever gonna be really truly happy, and I think. I think you have to have the courage to try to look inside of yourself. Maybe that's really the key to all this. Have the courage to look inside yourself and see what you think would make you happy. Like and 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 have the courage to acknowledge if you're not on that path. Because I think that's probably what's scarier than anything, is you feel it in the back of your head, right? You know, you your gut instinct, something's not right, but you don't want to look at it too hard because Start pulling that thread on that sweater, and the whole thing might kind of unravel uh I would say have the courage to pull that thread and see where it goes. you know, and I know it's harder if you've got a family, I know it's harder if you get got a lot of debt, but there's people with you know a a lot more hurdles in the world than than we most of us have here that will still attempt to better their 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 situation better their lives, better the people around them uh so don't 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 waste that opportunity and that's once again kind of the the code of the west version of this you know my what i'm trying to say as far as like what this means to me is you know we're in a we're in a world that isn't of an equal playing field we're in a country where we're trying i think you know over the course of our existence constantly trying to create a better version of the experiment and i would say right now With technology, what it is, and information as as easy as it is to exchange. Sorry, I need to. You got a tickle here. I think we're uh, we're doing a huge disservice to the gift that we've been given of being alive at this time by not taking a chance to consider what what might make us happy and what we might prefer to be doing as a source of income. Now, I it, it takes a lot of courage to To do that i th- I think it takes more courage to look inside and and try to answer these questions that I'm asking you than it does to actually act on them because like once you once you see it once you look at once you really look in the mirror, maybe literally even, but once you do it li- whether literally or metaphorically speaking it's it's hard to forget it. And I think that's part of the reason why a lot of us don't do that inward gaze. I think we kind of intuitively know that man, if I acknowledge this it's there now i'm not going to be able to forget it and now i now as an individual you're responsible for the yes or no does that make sense because where i started with this whole thing is you know it was sort of the the courage to speak up it was the courage to
1: say when something was wrong but but where i'm landing on this thing is is that you know it it might be the hardest thing in your life, to just acknowledge
0: that you're not happy with something, and and start exploring that. You know, I used to write in uh, notebooks a lot. Like I'd, I didn't have a diary, but I would I would write my ideas down and questions I have had, and I actually have started doing it again. You know, and I, I write about weird things. Like I mean, really weird stuff, like the theory of the mind, or uh, you know, I <laughs> like I spend you know a couple hours sometimes wondering about. Um, I don't know, market economies and stuff I mean, just random shit. Like but but it it's it's just kind of like how my brain
1: works. I I I I I tend to find a sense of calm in um trying to understand complex entangled uh systems. And I, I would I consider
0: doing that, right? Write that stuff down. Write your anxieties down. Because the other thing is, is like, once you, the reason why I was saying that, I lost track there for a second, like, it, it leads me to other things. You know, like, I think about these complex problems, and then, like, somehow in the course of writing for a half hour, or 45 minutes into it, I'm writing about the things that are bothering me. I'm, I'm writing about the things that are, like, actually the, uh, the issues that my brain's trying to resolve in the background. And so, you know it might sound nerdy or weird but you know write the things down that bother you that are that are wigging you out and put them in an envelope somewhere you know literally put them in a drawer just take 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 that albatross off from around your neck for a second excuse me and see what it feels like and then write down the things that make you happy and write down the things that scare you and write down i mean if you really want to go full tilt electric boogaloo, write about the things that you wanted to do. I don't care how old you are, if you're in your 20s and your 40s and your 60s, 70s or 80s, like, what what did you want to do? I, I think, and I, I had this realization pretty early on into the comic book thing. I think, most people would tell me like, oh man, I wish I knew what I wanted to do. I wish, I wish I'd wish i had my my childhood dream. And, I kind of intuited at that time, I was like, I bet, I bet these people have it. I bet they know what they want. I bet they're just, I bet they're too scared to say it because it's,
1: it's going to sound silly to them. Like, if somebody's like, I wanted to be, I don't know, a circus clown. Like I, I mean, they're, who cares if that's what you wanted to be and if that's what you wanted to do? But I,
0: I think that, I, I'm telling you, I think that there's something... I've I just I felt it. I've I've I felt that fear, you know, in that time between high school and while well, I was at Starbucks and before I, I really became committed to the idea of being a comic book creator again, I I could feel that sort of box on a shelf in my mind where I'm like, don't look inside that one. That one that 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 one stays on the shelf because I knew that inside that box was where my dreams were and where my goals were and the thing that I would regret. And, you know, in my mind, I'd walk past it every day, but I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't get that box out. I'd let the dust cover it up. And it was, it was Batman Year 100 when Paul's book came out as a trade. It was collected, and I happened to see it at the Barnes & Nobles in Boise, and I pulled it down, and I was flipping through it. I'm like, holy shit, Paul got really fucking good. And he finally did it. He did his a whole Batman book. And it was amazing. It was phenomenal. I'd never seen art like that in an American comic book before. And I was so excited. And then I bought two copies and I took one over to my friend Shay's house immediately. And we were talking about how inspiring it was and how I'd always wanted to make comics. And uh I that wasn't that was the night that I, I sent Paul a message for the first time. And I'd always wanted to send Paul a message since I was a kid. And when I'd read THB, which was this story set on Mars in the future, and it was kind of a, a dragnet kind of, uh, you know, uh, science fiction story about a girl trying to run, uh, well, outrun uh, government agents uh, on this future uh, Mars scenario. And I read it as a kid, and I'd always wanted to send him just like a fan letter. I mean, I never, I've never been compelled to do that with anybody else, and I think I even did draw like a picture and have a little note, but then I I got scared and didn't have my aunt send it, and so I never did it, but I read, I've read Year 100 that night, and uh, Heather and Shay had this, I don't know if you remember, but IMAX used to be, um, after they were, like, the the colorful television-looking tube things, there was one where it was just, like, a pod with, like, a flat screen that just sort of swiveled on a stick. It was kind of a cool-looking thing, but anyways, I, I was... I didn't have the internet at my house, and so I asked Heather and Shay if I could stay because I was pretty late into the evening, and I, uh, I stayed, they went to sleep, Lucas went to sleep, and I stayed in their kitchen at this little like desk they had, and I composed this fan letter basically to Paul saying that he'd inspired me as a kid, and I'd always wanted to make comics, and I thought I was going to do it, and then I didn't go to art school, but I just read Year 100, and it was amazing, and I'm going to do this. I I, I'm, I I can't let myself not make comics. So thank you. And um,
1: God, I wonder if I could actually pull that up. Um, hold on. Okay, sorry. I <laughs> I uh, we were
0: I was talking about stuff, and I was like, man, I haven't I haven't looked at these emails that I sent Paul uh, in. Jesus, fifteen years? I want to say yes, sixteen years. I uh cuz this this is like way back when social media was more or less just emerging and YouTube wasn't even a thing and it's funny to 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 look over these cuz a lot of a lot of these early exchanges that we were having after it went from hey what kind of paper do you use and what kind of brushes it became very philosophical very quickly and um yeah I I'm not going to read any of these right now but I had a I we, all the Flickr mail would go through uh, Yahoo. So I had, a, I had like, it, this has been so long that Yahoo deleted my, uh, my account <laughs> I had to open it back up. And then, then I was able to log back into Flickr and find a bunch of these. But um, yeah, a lot of the stuff that we were talking about is surprisingly pretty much what, what we're talking about now. It's uh, you know, we're talking about Voltaire and Frederick Bastiat and the law and um, th- these sort of uh, enlightened thinkers about you know individualism in their place in society, but w- the reason why I mean maybe I'll read some of these at some point. I'm probably going to have to screen grab some of them and send them to Paul <laughs> just so he knows what we were talking about. But uh, it, it's it's this uh, we were what we were mostly talking about is that even within this, the, the world that I was trying to step into in comics, there was still quite a bit of groupthink that, that Paul was having to deal with and how that can be frustrating at times. So I guess it, now it just serves as a, or as a reminder that it's not just, and I can, it helps me speak to the fact that it's not just, you know, your normal corporate scenarios or, uh, you know, businesses that you kind of come to expect these sorts of behaviors to be associated with. It's, it's pretty much anything like anytime a group of people get together, there tends to be this overwhelming uh, sense of culture that event eventually emerges from it. And you intuitively know or intuitively feel what the, um, you know, what the bylaws are. The reason why I brought it up though, and what we were talking about it and, and that sort of like, you know, stare yourself in the mirror sort of thing is I've been in one of the, in the first, you know, maybe I'll read the first one at
1: least parts of it. Uh, give me a second here. Get a get to the sent inbox, and I don't think Paul would be uh, upset if I read this because this this is the first one that I sent anyways,
0: with no response from Paul. So here's I that night I, I spent a couple of hours drafting this note. And Paul was my hero. I'd wanted to make comics since I was a kid, which will you know come out in the, in the note here. But up until this point, I'd never really risked anything in my mind. I had, had been walking past that shelf with the, the, the metaphorical box on it in my mind. I had ignored it. And then I read Year 100, went over to Shay's house with it. We had our conversations. And I, and I had looked in the mirror at that point. And I just knew it. So this is here's the note that I, I sent to Paul. So I've thought about writing this for about 15 years, ever since I read THB as a kid. And I have never really been satisfied, but here goes. Back around 1995, when I was about 10, my uncle, who was a student at CCAD in Columbus, showed me THB number one. He's always trying to help me grow as an artist, even back then, and he had a feeling that I would be interested in your stuff. I was. I consumed every available piece of material you had done up to that point. I poured over everything, studying, reading and analyzing your work. It was my introduction to comics and it has had a lasting impression. You were still living in Columbus at that point I think because you had gone to J- you had not gone to Japan yet. In fact, I know you hadn't because my uncle actually helped you move if I remember correctly. I want to say he was a friend of Scott's and I went over with him to see if we could catch you at your apartment before you left town. At any rate, you weren't there but Scott, Scott gave me this green microscope case which has served as a storage for a portion of my Star Wars figures ever since. Quick aside there, we went through his trash uh, (laughs) because Paul wasn't there. Brett and Scott Mao thought it would be okay for me to go through all the shit that Paul was not going to take with him to, uh, I think he was going to Montreal. And there's a bunch of like erotic manga, (laughs) like in a trash bag on the curb. And then there was this microscope case that had a microscope in it. And like, it was sort of like my consolation prize. But anyways, So, uh, though there is no way for you to know it, you have been my teacher over the past decade. Watching your style evolve has pushed my own forward, though I have a long way to go. Boy, did I. So I must apologize for the hero worship. I don't understand it and I feel silly for it, but it is what it is. I just had to get this off my chest because it's been bothering me for the past decade or so. I look forward to your future work, especially anything THB related, since I have been following it for the majority of my life. Thanks, Mr. Christopher Hunt. That note changed my life, and that is not hyperbole. That, conversa- that, l- that note led to a conversation with Paul, and it led to an exchange not really about comics and art, but about philosophy, like I was saying, and this shared common interest that I didn't realize that I had. And even to this day, we're not 100% sure if like I was kind of picking up intuitively on things that he'd kind of layered into some of his stories, or we came to him separate, and then I just didn't consciously notice them at the time, but then it eventually turned into a conversation about craft, and it it was the most illuminating moment of my life, and I say illuminating, illuminating, oh, excuse me, (laughs) not like in a, uh, oh, aha, I mean, like, it was like the world lit up in my mind, you know, it was like I suddenly understood, oh, this is what I should have been doing, and this. Metaphorically speaking, is taking chances, talking to people. We take it for granted now because everybody just slides in everybody's DMs. But like this was weird at the time. <laughs> you you didn't you didn't do this like it hadn't or it hadn't been done yet. Like Flickr was just uh, online portfolios, mostly photographers. And uh, Paul had put his portfolio up, and I started doing the same. And I was keeping track of what I was doing. Paul was able to comment on things. But you didn't just hit people up. Um, it was it was like this emerging community thing that was happening, where cyberspace was becoming like a uh, sort of like storefronts, and you you could kind of stop and look at people's wares, and, and not not literally buy them, but people were just wanted to share who they were. You know that that was it was a very innocuous way of sort of dipping our toes into social media it clearly became something else but um you know all these notes or messages that i get on instagram they're great but like i i it took me 2 hours to to write that and to ha- build up the courage to push the button you know and send that uh there because there was a cost there was a weight to me that like okay i got to make sure that this is this is the right way to do this that it's 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 balanced it's not creepy it's not clingy and i don't think that It's funny. I don't think that we are aware of how much value there is in the accessibility that we have. Therefore, we don't really leverage it the way that we should. You know, like people don't think anything of just sending a message or or putting a comment up that detracts or trolls or uh, is there to cause conflict. But um, you know, we have this amazing interconnected world now where. It it doesn't take much to gain access to people who are resident experts in fields that could help mentor and develop and teach. And I'm not saying everybody can do that, and that I, even I can I can't do it really right now outside of anybody that's at, you know, in our, our department or art
1: department at the day job. But you know, I guess what I'm trying to say is, is that like there's There's a weird sort of dichotomy at play where we're
0: now not viewing what actually requires courage as something that is worthy of fear, which is, I was saying, making good first impressions, trying to find a way to ask for help in a constructive way, which is like what I was trying to do with Paul. And instead, we're fearful of the smaller interactions in daily life that actually have the consequences to how we live and move through life because cyberspace is cool. I mean, it's antiquated to call it that, but I mean, to me, it is cyberspace. Like it's the internet. It's a, that's the original version of meta is, you know, uh, was cyberspace. Like there are no consequences there, it would seem. And therefore the value is rather diminished, I think, without people necessarily, even giving it even approaching it from that point of view, that there could be value in in this thing. It's just taken for granted now. And I think well I know, like my life changed because I had the compulsion to send that kind of note to Paul. It wasn't just, ha cool, I love your shit. There was there was substance behind it and he didn't respond to that one. Uh it wasn't really meant to. He responded to one, the next one, which took me a few weeks to craft as well, where I had failed at trying to ink, and he, I asked him basically what kind of paper, what kind of brush. I wonder if that one's on there, if it's easily accessible. Um, uh, and he was just like, hey, I yeah, yeah, use this brush, and FYI, you're going to hate your first 1,000 ink
1: drawings. Um, I think it was super simple like that, if I remember correctly. Let's see here. Yeah. So this was the first response I ever got from Paul directly. And then so
0: so this was the second interaction. The first one was the, the door opening. This is the one that actually changed me internally. So he goes, Yes, I prefer inking with a brush. Almost everything except pencils here is done with a zero 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 synthetic hairbrush and Japanese Sumi ink. Look for any good pre-digital era cartooning guidebooks, especially ones by John Richard Atkinson, Henry Pitts. A lot of this is trial and error. Be generous with yourself. This shit isn't easy at first, and uh, often after that too. Your first thousand ink drawings will likely be pretty poor, but struggle through those and pay attention to the good, bad results. PP. That he didn't know how much that was going to change my life, but the thousand ink drawings became my mantra. Basically, it became how I was able to deal with my own. Destructive perfectionism. And I, as soon as I read that, I was like, okay, I've just got to suck for a thousand. And I, and I started chipping away. And it just was it, that's what I mean by the illumination. It just, it was like things were lighting up in my brain. All of a sudden, I'm like, oh, it's a perception thing. I've been looking at this wrong. I, 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 I'm frustrated by the fact that I'm not good. No, no, I shouldn't be frustrated by that. I should be, I should be excited to suck, I should be excited to start this journey where eventually all I got to do is just put the time in, put the thousand ink drawings in,
1: and as long as I'm looking at what's good and I'm looking at what's bad, it's that simple. And I mean, I
0: guess I can't probably describe well enough to people who grew up with uh, social media there how scary this was to try to talk to this guy uh, because I didn't want him to be an asshole. I, really, really desperately needed this information. It did not exist at the time. There, there was an exponential explosion of information on the internet and, and its accessibility probably post-2012, where all of a sudden there's this curve where like tutorials, information, accessible, searchable information just showed up on the internet. At the time, I think there were like two or three websites that I was able to look at that had any kind of reference to what Paul was talking about, like the kind of paper, pens and brushes. You know, the books existed, but unless you had someone like Paul uh telling you what books to find, these old books, you weren't they weren't being listed on the websites either. You just had these very gimmicky, cheesy, here's how to draw the Marvel way, which
1: actually isn't a terrible book, by the way, but it's just not it's not a high-level book. And if I hadn't had
0: the courage to just risk being an imbecile in this guy's eyes i would i don 't know what i'd be doing right now you know and, and it conti- I had to continue to show up every day with the commitment to p- potentially be a goober head to potentially be a failure like I really truly believe you have to earn it every single day there's nothing that that can be or should be taken for granted that skill and um competence is something that has to continually be earned and 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 uh cannot be cannot be you can't rest on those laurels. And I love seeing people grow and, and develop. I, I mean there's a guy that we've been working with at Black Rifle that just in the time that I've known him and worked with him, he's just blown up and his uh his skill set is amazing. And I'm super proud of the fact that I've gotten to watch and offer a little bit of advice when I can. His name's Jonathan Griswold and you can He's, he's on the Instagrams as Grizzly River Art, but, um, you know, that dude, he, he he shows up every day and he's trying to get better and he's trying to learn and I have mad respect for it. And that's all you can do, I think. Like, you know, we've got a couple guys that we work with at the day job like that, that are always just trying to push themselves. And I, I respect it immensely. And I think that that takes a lot of courage to... To, to be doing something that's subjective like that and that you you hope people will like, but you
1: don't know for a fact because you can't quantify that stuff. So I guess I'll leave you with that. Like, if, you, if you're scared of something, then
0: I would say that's probably a good indicator that that's something to take a look at. That might be something that has some value in your life. And... And maybe start trying to change that perception of when you feel that fear, instead of it being something that triggers you to withdraw or hide or sort of diminish yourself, recognize that fear as an opportunity. Is that in that moment? I know I'm sure there's like some Tony Robbins shit about that somewhere floating out there. But um, if you're going to have the hat, if you're going to have the shirt and the poster and you're going to have the printout, you know, that starts with live with courage that's that's all I'm saying that's all that's all I hope that you think about when you look at that or you wear the hat, you wear the shirt, you hang the, the drawing. live with courage is is knowing what that fear is it's knowing that you don't shy away from it and and you act anyways and you can be careful, you can be cautious I mean really I, I mean I think all it is is mostly just looking at the thing, looking at that beast in its eyes and knowing. Knowing what it is for me, it was knowing I would regret not trying to build a career out of storytelling with an emphasis on comic books. That was what I knew. That was the beast that I had to look down. And then it was hard after that. You know, it, I didn't have money. I struggled. I worked multiple jobs. I didn't have relationships when I probably would have loved. Though I know I would have loved to have deeper relationships and longer ones with the people I was lucky enough to to be with, but um, I also knew I was going to be a son of a bitch to be around because I wasn't going to be able to lie about the fact that my career was more important than anything else at that time in my life. And so I had this sort of trail of, of normalcy that I kept shedding and leaving behind. And I'd like to think that there's other ways to do that for my particular, like what I wanted to do with my life. I think there's other ways of doing it, but I, did, I didn't know how to do it any other way for myself. That's that's where it becomes your journey and your thing. But if, you, if you're going to do the Code of the West thing, if you're going to support it, if you're going to be a part of a decentralized group, because like I said, it's about being an individual. It's not about being... It's about being a group of individuals who can kind of like meet each other on the trail, you know, but whether it's literal or metaphorical, and be able to Silently nod and smirk at each other, and and to have that knowing, that knowingness between each other. That's what code of the west is. It's that like, hey, it might not be perfect, it might not be pretty, but we're doing the best that we can. And that's that's what I hope this thing means to you, because that's what it means to me. It's it's not about me wanting you to be like me, or advocating to take the same path. I'm just saying, have the courage to take your path.
1: Have the courage to. Try to understand what you think would make you happy, and then going after it, after it. So, yeah, I think I'll leave you with that. Uh, thanks for
0: thanks for taking this one this ride because it's a little bit more. I think it's a little bit more intentful. It felt a little bit different. Like I felt more like uh, like I needed to say this rather than I wanted to. If that makes sense. So, uh, yeah, we'll see. I think i'll probably post this tomorrow it's a sunday right now i might post it tonight i don't even know but uh thanks for listening this one uh this one feels kind of special so uh i appreciate it and i always appreciate everything that you guys are are doing to help support things uh I, i've got a couple photos while i was gone uh, in san antonio this week which was a lot of fun by the way i really enjoyed it um i think i said that earlier i can't remember <laughs> but uh uh, you know, Colleen, uh, she sent me a picture of uh, on the dashboard of her helicopter, her grandpa's cafe hat, which uh, I should be getting those in for all the people that pre-ordered those next week or two. Um, and then I'm I'm trying to figure out how I want to go with the the products still, but like I'm starting to think that you know maybe this is more important than than the products, and maybe this should be the focus. This meaning the podcast, um, because. Uh, yeah, I, I I don't know. That's my that's my little fear box I have right now is that I don't think that I have anything to really say of value, but I feel the need to say something about certain things. So, um, you know, more than more, I have a more overwhelming feeling to to talk about this kind of stuff than I do to to put the shirts and the hats and stuff out right now. Um, seems more important. So. I'm still drawn. I'm still thinking about all that stuff, but, you know, I don't know, we'll see how it goes, so, anyways, I'll talk to you guys soon, thanks for listening, as always, and, uh, you know, make sure you give us a follow on Instagram at the Code of the West, uh, we got the website, and the store, uh, there's still shirts, and uh, the hats will be coming back in soon, and then, um, what else we got, we got prints up, so, if you're a first-time listener, check out the dot that's where the store is, and uh, you know a lot of the drawings and things that we're working on. I'm putting that up through uh, the Code of the West Instagram as well, which is you know, at the Code of the West. So check us out there, and uh, we'll catch you on the flip-flop.